what I'd like to do over the next couple of weeks is to ask the dinner party question of how on earth can you believe those things that you say that you believe? I don't know if you've been in that setting and maybe with Christmas time coming around the corner, those conversations come thick and fast. Uh, And one of the sources of those conversations for the last 11 years has been uh, the book written by a man called Dan Brown. Do you recognize that, that cover? Um, and it was called The Da Vinci Code. And in The Da Vinci Code, it, it taught a, a number of things about Jesus. It sort of couched it in, the, in factual language, as if this, this is true. And it said uh, the following things. It said, The Catholic Church has kept true facts about Christianity hidden through force and terror. That Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, who was actually the head apostle. That the Holy Grail is not as commonly believed the chalice used at the Last Supper, but the womb of Mary Magdalene, who bore Jesus' daughter, who, by the way, was called Sarah. Uh, Nice name. (laughs) That's a good choice. Uh, The descendants of Mary Magdalene and Jesus became kings of France. That Jesus was not considered the son of God before Constantine came along. That he was just a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man of staggering influence. And he was a radical feminist. And it was the pagan emperor Constantine who proposed a motion to upgrade Jesus to deity at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, and that Jesus became the Son of God by a narrow vote. But prior to that, no one thought he was divine, and that Constantine's motive in all of this was to give power to the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) Such is the backdrop of intellectual excellence in our country at this this stage and day. So let's pray as we begin to to look at some of these claims and work out what we say in those dinner party moments together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together this morning. Thank you for the opportunities of looking at your word and trying to understand who your son Jesus is. We pray that you might give us increasing revelation and understanding how to share our faith kindly and nicely with people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if, like me, you read The Da Vinci Code when it came out um, 10, 11 years ago, you'll have found that it's a rip-roaring adventure, 105 chapters in quite a small book. So each chapter is very, very tight, and you just want to keep going on to the next one all the time. Uh, It begins with this sort of disclaimer. Um, Basically, on the inside cover, it says, the following are facts and indisputable. And it lists various things about the Priory of Zion and about Jesus that it claims are uh, constructed from, from historical investigation. And even if you haven't read The Da Vinci Code over the next weeks, I promise you, that on Channel 4 documentaries, on Times leaders, in the Telegraph, in their comments section on Christmas Day, and in the Mail and Express and Guardian and Independent, there will be some sort of tiswas about Christianity <laughs> written by someone with some amount of facts. And you can try and work out how many of them. How do I know? Because it happens every year. Whether it's a comment about whether it's a cave or a stable and therefore can we trust the nativity or were there three wise kings or magi or were they in fact all women and there were 300 of them. These sort of things are just put out there into our culture. And to try and get a handle on this, we have to understand something of what has happened to our culture generally and what sort of age do we live in. 
Since the 1920s in the academic sphere, and since probably the 50s in the popular sphere, we've lived in what is called postmodernism. And postmodernism is something that basically says you don't really have to have any answers, you just have to ask questions. <laughs> Because there aren't really any answers out there, and if you try and have an answer, you're probably arrogant and not based in any sense of, of reality. And so, what you're taught at school, by and large, is to ask a question about something. You're not taught any particular facts, you're just taught to criticize things. I've just come back from studying with some、uh, postgraduates, and these sort of 20 something year old postgraduates have what they call the hermeneutic of suspicion. A hermeneutic of suspicion means you should just be suspicious of everything.、Uh, it might not surprise you to learn that this worldview has grown up. In the same time that the advertising culture has burned <laughs> and spared. And when you see an advert on TV or hear it on the radio, of course you filter it, don't you, through the hermeneutic of suspicion. You don't really believe that Purcell's Whiter Than Whites in 2014 are going to be substantially than what they told you was whiter than white in 2009, and their brand new product in 2001, which was whiter than anyone could ever make white clothes, which indeed was just a follow on from what they did in 1988, which was whiter than white back then as well, etc. So, we have good reason in our culture to be suspicious of some of the information flow that keeps barraging us and coming our way. But this leads to a sort of a nebulous all in all where you can't necessarily know anything about truth. However, we don't have to give in to that as Christians. While there's some benefits of that worldview, clearly we also believe. In a faith that's grounded not just in our feelings and our experience and in a relativist thing, but that we believe is grounded in facts and the facts as laid out in the Bible story, as was read to us in, in a couple of verses just now. That there was a woman called Mary who met a man called Joseph, that before they could get together, God overshadowed her by the Holy Spirit. And she was with child, and she had a child, and they called him the name the angel told him to call them, which was the name of Jesus. And one of the key things that Christians need to do is to try and study sufficiently to work out the facts from the fiction. Because otherwise, all we will be is hostage to whoever has the loudest voice and the biggest argument. And because of our culture, we're not hostage to them in the sense that they have to convince us, because we're not a culture where people are used to being convinced of anything. Even after the court of law has passed judgment on something, we still debate whether it really happened. Even after something like September 11th, 2001, there are still numerous of people debating whether the planes even hit the Twin Towers. <laughs> We're not a culture that's used to dealing in facts. All we're used to do is dealing in suspicion. And so, for suspicion to reign, all you have to do is put something out there that sounds vaguely convincing. And generally, what happens to people is they just sort of give up. <laughs> And that's how people will talk about religion. If you're in that dinner party, after five or six sentences, By and large, the semi interested agnostic person will put their hands up and go, Oh, yeah, but we can't really know, can we? <laughs> have, you, have you had that experience? Not just me? Yeah,、oh, but who knows? You know, the Muslims say one thing, the Buddhists say another, as if the Buddhists actually said anything particularly like that.、Uh, the Hindus say another thing, as if there was such a thing as Hinduism、uh, in a big entity. 
which there isn't. And how, how can you possibly know? And so the, the Christian doesn't have to give in to that, and we don't have to be overcome by the hostility of that. Rather, what we need to do is pray and ask God for opportunities, and then we also need to have a certain amount of information so that we've got a reason uh, that we can answer people with, with the hope that we have. So what, what do we do? One of the first things to do is, is to pray. And what, what sort of things should you pray as you face Christmas with um, relatives who, who are anti-Christian or who, who just want to have a dig at the fact that you went to the carol service or that you want to go to the communion on, at 11 on, Sunday, on a Christmas morning? And you, you say, God, please give me a chance to let my life resonate with the things that I believe so that people will be attracted to you through me. And please give me the words to say if they ask me a question. It's quite simple, isn't it? Two things, really. Please let my life match what I say, and please give me some words to say. Please give me the chance to say something. And, and it might be that when you, you come to saying something, that where you want to start from is, you know, I understand that there are lots of viewpoints in the world, and I understand that different people think different things. But all I can tell you for sure is this is what I have found. Come and see. And that's not an unsensible place to start from. Because frankly, we're not all going to be Aramaic, Arabic, and Hebrew scholars able to work out the original source text for ourselves. But if you say, look, in, in all honesty, with all rationality, I've looked into these things, but I have found that this has explaining power in my life. And I have met with this person from this book. Well, the postmodern has to put their hands up to that and go, wow, that's good for you. They don't necessarily say that's good for me as well, do you see? But they, they will go, that's good for you, because they don't have a preconceived mindset that they have to argue into a corner. Because they're quite happy having everyone having it all, all out there. That's nice for you, mum. <laughs> Now, they might say it in a patronizing tone of voice, as in, I think you're a bit of a nincompoop, but they, they, will, they will let you have it. And it will register with them, especially if it's backed up with the authenticity of a life where you can see it making sense. And you say, well, what sort of life makes sense of what I believe? And the answer is, is a hard one, isn't it? Because the answer is that your life makes sense to outsiders, not when joy is shining, and, and the Advent calendar today, candle today is for joy, it's the third week of Advent, but it's not when joy is shining that your life is going to make most sense to those who dispute what you believe. It's actually that year when you lost a parent, or when you faced difficulty, or when your marriage went through crisis or when your children are ill, or when you've lost your job, or when there's uncertainty ahead of you, and they see you hanging on to what you believe by your fingernails, <laughs> but hanging on nevertheless, and somehow covered and loved by it. Let me give you an illustration. An, a neighbor of a, a lady in church who's, whose husband died, I lived upstairs in a flat from her. I, I know this lady well. I've got to know her in recent years. And she can always remember the, the night when, when this lady's husband died. Her children went and, um, and took refuge with the neighbor in her flat. 
And then she just noted people after people from the church just wrapping the bereaved lady around with love. And it stayed in her, and it's impacted this neighbor immensely. Now, I I don't know how often she'd been invited to Alpha courses and stuff before that. But ever since that moment when there was tragedy, she's seen a reality beginning to work out. And that's, uh, that's, that's where your life will shine most brightly for Jesus, when there are tough things. Now, I'm not going to say hands up who's had tough things this year, because I'm pretty sure it will be most of us in the room. And normally our condition is to believe it's only us who's had a tough year, isn't it? Especially approaching Christmas. But actually most of us have had tough things over this year. And it's at those moments where you feel most like a jar of clay that there's most explanatory power for the faith that you profess. It's not that it's a crutch that you lean on because it's not as pathetic as a crutch. (laughs) It's a dynamic power that sustains you. It's not something that you hold and move around and control like a crutch. It's something huge that wraps you and holds you and is there for you. So so on the one hand, you've got your story to talk about. But if it was just your story, it would just be another story among many postmodern stories, wouldn't it? And that's not the situation. And so when uh, Dan Brown says that Jesus was married, that he wasn't the son of God, that no one believed it before, that it was all about this man Constantine, um, what should we do with that? Well, the answer is, thankfully, we have a huge number of uh, historians and academics within the church who are able to investigate these things for us. And, and when you study the evidence of what sometimes people say, you realize that people who have got used to asking questions and not investigating facts are not necessarily very good at investigating facts. So, for example, in the Da Vinci Code, they, they, and I'll, I'll finish this off next week because we haven't got time to do all of it, but in the Da Vinci Code, they, he suggests that his evidence comes from three places. The first one is the, what's called Q, which is the uh, hypothetical source of passages within Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel um, that seem to expand on what's in Mark's Gospel. And the suggestion is that maybe Jesus wrote this and that there is um, special information in Q. Um, and this, this is a well-known uh, phenomenon within the academic world. It's been, been around for 150, 200 years. And it has, has some, some credence to it. Secondly, he talks about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I'm sure you've heard about from Channel 4 documentaries, if, if nowhere else, and that were found in the 50s in Qumran, and the Coptic Scrolls of Nag uh, Hammadi. Um, and uh, what Dan Brown claims is that... Um, that these documents speak of Christ's ministry in very human terms, and the scrolls highlight glaring historical discrepancies and fabrications, clearly confirming that the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to promote the divinity of the man Jesus Christ and use his influence to solidify their power base. Now, being clever and bright people, you'll be delighted that he's put his colors to the mast at this point, because that gives you something to investigate and think, well, well is that right? Do Q, Naghamandi, and the Dead Sea Scrolls do those things? Well, firstly, Q, whether or not Q exists as a document, is essentially irrelevant. The whole point is that we know what was written in Q because it's in Matthew and Luke. <laughs> There's nothing in it 
that we don't have in the scripture. That's, that's the whole point of it, effectively. It adds nothing to what we know of the New Testament and certainly won't contradict the existing Gospels. Do, do, do you understand what I'm saying there? So you know that Mark has got 16 chapters. It's relatively short. Matthew's about 28. Luke's about 26 chapters. Check those numbers out. Uh, and it looks like some of the stuff that's not in Mark is in Matthew and, and Luke. And therefore, when Matthew and Luke put together their Gospels, and they use sources. And we, we know that's reasonable because Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, says many people have tried to put together a, a reasonable account of Jesus' life. Uh, and here I'm investigating all the sources and I'm giving you the most reasonable one. <laughs> so that's exactly what the gospel writers claim to do and exactly what they did. So using the sources. But this, this source, this cue, if it exists, says nothing uh, that isn't in our existing gospels. The Dead Sea Scrolls, secondly, then. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found uh, about 1947 uh, and thereafter near Qumran, and it contained three things. One was all of the Old Testament books, apart from Esther, and it has, for example, the oldest copy of Isaiah, the oldest by a thousand years, a fantastic source of information. These things were just stuffed in in a big clay jar in a cave and sealed and preserved superbly. It also has some Bible commentaries on Old Testament books, uh, the Psalms and the hymns, and some sectarian material belonging to the Qumran community itself. And it is true that the uh, delays in publication led to conspiracy theories that the scrolls contained information that would undermine Christianity. However, all of these have now been translated and are published. And you can actually walk into Waterstones and ask them to order you a copy of the translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you can look at it for yourself. What there isn't in the Dead Sea Scrolls are any Gospels. Nor is there any mention of Jesus at all, nor Paul, nor John the Baptist. Um, they contain interesting background information on the New Testament, but no direct relationship to it. So far from being the earliest Christian records... They're not Christian records at all. (laughs) You see? So somewhere in this novel, which some of your relatives will have read, Dan Brown has been claiming that the Q and the Dead Sea Scrolls tell you other information about Jesus. And because you are able to go and investigate it for yourself, then you can quickly say, well, actually, this is spurious rubbish. It's not true. Um, Go to Waterstones, order a copy, (laughs) have a look for yourself. How about the third one? And we'll, we'll probably finish with this today, and I'll, I'll wrap up the more interesting stuff next week. So there's a, there's a sort of a teaser for you. Well, the Nag Hammondy documents were found in 1945 by two peasant farmers in Upper Egypt who came across a jar as they were digging. And they smashed the jar, thinking it could contain gold, and instead they found um, the papyrus codices. Uh, and one of them, a guy called Muhammad Ali, wrapped the books in his tunic, got on his camel, and carried them back to a tiny hovel in his hamlet. And when the documents came to light, they were found to be 4th century Coptic papyrus manuscripts. There were 12 codices, that's an ancient manuscript, and eight leaves from a 13th century codex. They contained 45 separate titles written in Coptic that had been translated from Greek. And they provide a Gnostic library, which is the single most important contribute towards our knowledge of Gnosticism. What is Gnosticism? Because this is one of those things that is always on Channel 4. Gnosticisms are really hard to define, sort of decentralized, eclectic challenge to the early Christian faith. There were loads of varieties of it, but essentially there was a sort of a radical dualism. Body is bad, spirit is good. 
It's all about what you're like um, in the spirit realms. What you do down here is bad or evil. If, if you know the Bible well, the book of 1 and 2 John are often written against Gnosticism. So this was a thing that was around early on, sort of saying it's all about who you are spiritually. You may have had special revelation about the spiritual realms. Um, and there are normal down there people who are just like body people. <laughs> but we've got special revelation. We're spirit people. Um, and the only way to escape the clumsy world we were in was, was this secret knowledge. That's what Gnostic means. Gnosis means knowledge. And if you've got this secret knowledge, um, then, then, then you can overcome ignorance. And Christ came as an emissary of the supreme God, bringing Gnosis. It, it was never assumed, he never assumed a fully human body, nor did he really die. He was divine, um, but, but he was just maybe a it's used a complicated word, a phantasmal human appearance. <laughs> Do you see? So there, there are two things that the book of 1 John combats. He says that some people don't say Jesus came in the flesh, and some people don't say that he was God. Either one of those, you're totally mis- misbued, but, um, but that were the things that people would do. Um, and they would, they would just have seen that he was apparently real rather than not. Um, now, what we understood about Gnosticism was increased by these, these documents from Nag Hammadi. Um, but the Nag Hammadi documents aren't really Gospels at all. If, if you read them, they're non-historical, even anti-historical. There's no narrative uh, or sense of chrono- chronology. These particular ones are obviously written years and years after the events. Um, and much of it is written in what they call pseudepigraphy, so someone else writing in someone's name. Most famous of all, the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Mary is quite famous, but the Gospel of Thomas probably among the most important. And the Gospel of Thomas was written about 400 AD, translated from original... Um, Sorry, the Coptic version was written in 400 AD, translated from a Greek that might have been written in 150 AD. It's not like the Gospels that you will know. Uh, but it's a series of pithy sayings and discourses of Jesus. It's got the parable of the sower, the mustard seed, the tenants, the lost sheep, and other things in it. Um, and among the, the quotes that Da Vinci Co. claims for it is that, it, that um, Jesus was more sympathetic to women in the Gospel of Thomas than in the New Testament. So you can see how this gets people excited today. And maybe... maybe um, the men have repressed the women by, by getting rid of this document, which is more accurate. Actually, that's not true. If you read the Gospel of Luke, the view of women in the Gospel of Luke and how Jesus builds up women is extraordinary. Um, but Gnostic anthropology has a terrible view of women. Uh, they were regarded as secondary and defective. For example, in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Simon Peter says, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus says, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> That's not exactly a feminist rewrite of Jesus, is it? <laughs> and it's not, it's not Jesus. It's not written by Jesus. This is what someone in the second century has, has written Later on, there's something similar from the, gosp- the Gospel of Philip, which is where the idea um, about Jesus loving Mary Madeline more than any of the others came along. Um, but this was probably written towards the end of the third century. 
And again, the Gospel of Mary, um, similarly a Gnostic, um, um, uh, says, um, Peter says, did the Saviour really speak with a woman without our knowledge? Are we to turn about and all listen to her? Did he prefer us to her? And Levi says, Peter, you have been hot-tempered. Now I see you contending against the woman like an adversary. If the Saviour made her worthy, who are you to reject her? Surely the Saviour knows her very well. That's why he loved her more than us. And from this, a conclusion is drawn that according to these unaltered Gospels, it's not Peter to whom Christ gave instructions, but Mary Magdalene. And uh, we we can pick up further uh, in due course whether that's true or not. But do you, see, do you see what happens in our current contemporary society with these sort of debates? Essentially, what's being picked up are extracts from three texts which are written 100 to 300 years after Jesus. And they're not given in their context. They're not given in what they actually say. They're given with a bizarre twist and 20, 20th, 21st century sort of mindset on them. To claim that this is a wonderful secret, to claim that this is a wonderfully feminist thing, to claim that this gives us secret knowledge that all of those silly believers out there can't possibly have got on their own. It's attractive, isn't it? It's such an attractive idea to think maybe there's a secret knowledge out there that's, that's more dangerous, more risky, more different to the one that we have. But I, I wonder if you resonate with this final quote from G.K. Chesterton. People have fallen into a foolish habit of speaking of orthodoxy as something heavy, humdrum, and safe. There never was anything so perilous or so exciting as orthodoxy. It was sanity, and to be sane is more dramatic than to be mad. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom would indeed have been simple. It is always simple to fool. There are an infinite number of angles at which one fools, but only one at which you can stand. To have fallen into any of the fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame, but to have avoided them all, to be orthodox, has been one of whirling adventure. (laughs) against the postmodern world, against all of the views that people have out there and they're just mere clouds of suspicion. You are those called to follow the way and the truth and the life. And the truth that you follow isn't one just of your own experience, but one that's rational, historical, based in scripture and in other truths that we will discover more of next week. Uh, You can have great confidence in the Christ in whom you have put your trust. May God bless you this Advent and this Christmas time.